everyone. It's so good to be with you all today. My name is Sarah and I'm one of the pastors here at HTBB. And I wonder, when were you last caught out in a storm? I don't just mean getting caught out in a shower without your umbrella. I mean a full-on lightning, thunder, windscreen wipers on full kind of a storm. You know, the ones here in Malaysia where you know you're still driving, but feel like you might start to float any minute. Or perhaps the storm you're in right now isn't a physical one, but your life feels a bit out of control and circumstances are raging around you. Well, the storm in today's passage is not on land, but at sea, where a small shipping vessel is caught in a powerful and life-threatening storm. It's the tale of a reluctant prophet, a tempestuous ocean, and the relentless pursuit of the God who loves us. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at the biblical story of Jonah in more detail to see what it's all about and what God might want to teach us through it. It's one of the shortest books in the Old Testament, and yet there's so much to learn from it. So let's turn together and start reading at chapter one. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tashish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tashish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, hey, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked what have you done they knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so the sea was getting rougher and rougher so they asked him what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us pick me up and throw me into the sea he replied and it will become calm I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you but instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Wow, quite a dramatic turn of events. Well, just to give you a bit of background to this story, Jonah ministered between 800 and 750 BC. That's around the same time as the Western Zhou dynasty in China and the beginning of the Greek classical era. He lived in Israel where he was a godly and well-respected prophet. So kings, military leaders, people of political influence, they would all have known who Jonah was. 
I'm sure if he was living in Malaysia, he might even have been Dato Jonah or even Tansri. And during this time, there was a neighboring land called Assyria. The Assyrian people were known for their violent and wicked ways. And whilst we join the story at a time of relative peace, the Assyrians are a constant underlying threat to Israel's security on the northern border. So Jonah had good reason to be afraid of them. And we're told Nineveh is a great city in this hostile land. So knowing this, perhaps we can understand why Jonah's reluctant. Only he's a prophet. Old Testament prophets were people who heard from the Lord and then did as God told them to. They would hear, go, do, say. We don't expect this kind of disobedience from a prophet right at the very beginning. And yet without hesitation, when he hears what the Lord is telling him to do, we're told in verse three, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. He is literally going in the opposite direction and there is no wavering in his decision to be disobedient. And for most of us, disobedience is nearly always rooted in a much more primal motive or emotion, perhaps doubt or fear. And I think in Jonah's case, it's both. But why is he afraid and what is he doubting? Well, the Lord is telling Jonah to take his grace and salvation right into enemy territory. And Jonah's simply having none of it. Perhaps a bit like the deceiving serpent in the Garden of Eden, that seed of doubt is sown and he's asking himself, "Mm, did God really say? Do you ever hear from God and then later on have that niggling doubt when you think, was that really God or was that just me? Then there's fear. Maybe Jonah is afraid for his life as well as worried about losing his reputation. What are your barriers to obedience? Does fear sometimes prevent you from stepping into God's plans for your life? Maybe it feels a bit risky or you're worried about what people might think about you. But there's also an internal battle going on for Jonah here, and it's one of judgment. His burning question is, if you really are a good and a just God, how on earth could you want me to go to these people? How can you be both just and merciful? Jonah doesn't understand grace, and he allows his fear to limit his faith. He doesn't want God to take him out of his comfort zone. He doesn't want to be challenged. Do we only obey when God's plans align with our own and when we can see where it's heading? Or do we allow God's plans to override our own, even though it maybe doesn't make much sense to others? Maybe we can relate to Jonah more than we realise. Around 11 years ago, when we were looking at the possibility of moving to Malaysia, our eldest son was moving from primary up to secondary school. So he sat the entrance exam for a well-known boys' school in London in case the move to Malaysia fell through. Well, amazingly, he was offered a place and a full financial scholarship. And not long after, around a similar time, I can remember standing on the sidelines of a football match that our son was playing in. And the grandfather of another boy who'd also been offered a place at this school came up to me and he said, well, Sarah, you're either brave or foolish. Why would you give up this brilliant opportunity in London and put your son in a school you barely know anything about? Aren't you worried you're going to ruin his education? Well, you can imagine. I was completely lost for words. 
And not only that, but in that split second, the seed of doubt was sown and I was thinking, are we being foolish? Did God really say? How would this impact our children's education? I knew I had to trust what I know to be true about God, that He is faithful because my feelings were all over the place. And our son's education? Well, I can honestly tell you now, 10 years on, that our son's education has worked out so much better than anything Miles and I could have planned or hoped for or imagined for him. You see, God is always, always for us. His grace is sufficient. His grace is for everyone. So I wonder, what does that look like for you? What do you need to submit to the Lord and trust Him in today, even if it doesn't quite seem to add up or make sense? Because this is the lesson Jonah has to learn. He is the prophet who panics. Right at the beginning in verse 1, Jonah is introduced as the son of Amittai, a name which means faithfulness. And yet, ironically, Jonah proves to be anything but. Instead of going to Nineveh, he takes the ship to Tarshish, which would have been about 4,000 kilometers away. That would be like taking a ship from Port Dixon all the way to Perth. Not something you would do in a hurry. And it would have taken him nearly a year to get there. In contrast to the hostile city of Nineveh, Tarshish was an exotic port. We're told in two chronicles that it was a place of gold and silver, ivory and peacocks. To Jonah, it must have felt like the ultimate escape destination. And it couldn't have been more different from Nineveh. And what does Jonah do when he gets on the boat? He goes to sleep. It's almost as if he just wants to block out what's happening. Isn't it interesting that we're told he goes down to Joppa and then down below deck to sleep? It's almost as if he's spiritually spiralling and clocking out. And at this stage in the story, we can only speculate. But whilst it's highly likely Jonah ran away because he was scared of what the Assyrians might do to him, it's also possible he was afraid they might actually repent. These hostile people who have previously attacked his own land and who he has nothing in common with. Isn't it sometimes easier to share God with the people we know, the people who come from similar backgrounds, the people we find it easier to like? But right here at the beginning of Jonah's story, we see a profound truth about God and a message that recurs throughout the entire book. You see, God made all humankind in his image, not just those that choose to follow him. We all carry the Imago Dei, and so his love and grace are extended to everyone, not just his chosen people, or in Jonah's case, the people he's unwilling to take God's word to. Back in the 1500s, the theological reformer John Calvin said this, Do not consider men's intention, but look upon the image of God in them, which cancels and effaces their transgressions, which means sins, and with its beauty and dignity, allures us to love and embrace them. And this is what Jonah misses. He hasn't worked out that God's grace is not only for him and his people, but it's also for those people he considers other, even those who do seemingly unforgivable things, because we are all created in God's image. And again, I think Jonah is wrestling over this issue of justice. The Assyrians had wronged God and his people. Surely they needed punishment, not a second chance. He misses the point that God is inviting him, Jonah, to be a part of this bigger redemption plan, 
to embrace the other and to take God's grace to them because God's grace is for the other. So I wonder, who is the Assyrian in your life? Maybe someone who feels a bit of another in your life, a competitor in business or that one work colleague who betrayed you to get ahead. Maybe it's a really annoying neighbour or that one relative you will do everything you can to avoid over Chinese New Year. Maybe like Jonah, it's someone who looks different to you, whose culture or religion is different. The book of Jonah challenges us to see them as God sees them, carrying the Imago Dei, our fellow humanity, and as those deeply loved by God too. And Jonah knows he is disobeying God. In verse 10, it says, this terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. He even tells the other sailors as much. And look at how they question Jonah. They ask him so many questions that were clearly important to them. So why aren't you praying? Why aren't you helping? What are you doing here? We are all quite literally in the same boat. So why don't you care about us? Who are you anyway? We're not even told Jonah prays, which suggests he probably says nothing. And isn't it interesting that Jonah affirms his own sense of identity by his ethnicity, and his religion. He says, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the God of Israel, the God who made sea and land. And here's another irony. These pagan sailors who we're told worship other gods care far more for Jonah than he cares for them. They love their neighbor. They recognize and value their shared humanity and demonstrate love for the other far more than Jonah seems capable of. Jonah is so fixed on running away from God. He's a bit like the prodigal son in Jesus' parable in Luke 15, when he chooses to disobey and disown the father. And then only when he's lost everything, does he face the consequences of his own disobedience too. You see, when we disobey, when we choose to live outside God's guidelines, eventually there will be consequences. When I was growing up, I was the younger of two girls. And whilst I always seemed to be getting into trouble, my older sister was sensible, responsible, and always got the better report card. And I can remember this one time, and I must have been maybe five or six, but I was making something and I wanted some silver paint. And my parents had a high shelf up in a room at the back of the house where they kind of put everything that needed to be kept out of reach. So things like bleach, weed killer, toilet cleaner, spray paint stripper, you know the sort of thing. And on this particular occasion, I knew there was a can of silver spray paint there, probably car spray paint. Well, I decided that I really needed that silver spray paint. So I dragged a kitchen chair to the bench. I carefully climbed up and then I actually had to climb onto the bench, which tells you just how small I must have been. And I got down that can of silver spray paint. But despite shaking it hard, when I tried to get the can to work, it wouldn't. So I went to the kitchen, I got a toothpick, and then with all my energy, I leaned right over the can and I pushed down really hard and poof, in a split second, my entire face, hair, clothes were covered in permanent silver spray paint. I must have looked a little like the Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz. Well, I just knew I had done something really 
really bad. Without so much as trying to cover my tracks or going to the mirror to check the damage, I can remember screaming out to my mum, who was hanging out the washing in the garden, and as I ran to her, her face filled with horror, and she dropped the laundry basket, came running towards me, scooped me up, rushed me to the sink, put my head under the running water to rinse out my eyes as she scrubbed my face until it was pink to try to get rid of the permanent silver spray. Amazingly, there was no permanent damage, but I still had to pay the consequences, which mean, meant showing up to school for several weeks with silver hair and silver eyebrows. Maybe perhaps like me and Jonah, you've experienced what the consequences of disobedience can look like too. Jonah finally realizes the great storm is the consequence of his disobedience. So he says to the sailors in verse 12, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. We're reminded of a similar incident in Mark chapter four, when Jesus is also in a boat, when a terrible storm occurs, and those in the boat question, how could Jesus be asleep, just as the sailors asked Jonah? In fact, the narratives are almost identical. A wind comes up, Jonah is asleep, Jesus is asleep. And in both incidences, the other passengers say, hey, wake up, don't you care that we're going to drown? And they both get up and they solve the problem. Only of course, there are lots of differences. Jonah was on a boat because he was avoiding the will of God, whereas Jesus was fulfilling it. Jonah's defiant presence on the boat causes the storm, whereas Jesus' presence on the boat is what causes the storm to be still. The sailors wake Jonah up, but still he doesn't call on the Lord. Whereas Jesus is the Lord, the disciples call on for help. Jonah was on a boat to avoid going to see the Gentiles in Nineveh, whereas Jesus is on a boat precisely to go to see the Gentiles on the other side of the lake. And finally, Jonah ultimately had to be delivered from death, whereas Jesus chose death so that we might be delivered from it. The sailors' words even foreshadow the cross when they say, do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. The difference is we know that Jonah wasn't innocent, whereas Jesus was. And another irony is that these heathen sailors display far more faith than Jonah. When they reluctantly throw Jonah overboard and the storm subsides, they are in no doubt about which God reigns. They experience firsthand the supernatural power of the Almighty. We're told they offer sacrifices, not just to Elohim, the general term for God in Hebrew, but to Yahweh, the covenant name for God. They are completely converted. Not only that, but even though Jonah is doing everything he can to avoid it, a group of pagan strangers get converted. Just the kind of people Jonah doesn't really want to help. Isn't it amazing that even in disobeying God, the Lord uses this part of Jonah's story to bring others to know him. And I don't know about you, but I find that quite comforting, that God's grace is greater than our greatest mistakes. Jonah shows us that we can't outrun grace. We can't run away from God's plans because in his love, he pursues us rather than giving up on us. Whether willingly or otherwise, when Jonah finally says, throw me overboard, I wonder what's going on in his head. Is he thinking, of course the God of Israel is going to save me? I'm not so sure. I imagine Jonah fully anticipates God's wrath and judgment, 
to result in his death. I don't imagine Jonah saw a big fish as part of the rescue plan, nor at this stage do we know how it might end. But what it does teach us is that whilst God doesn't always answer our prayers in the way we expect, he doesn't give up on Jonah and he won't give up on you or me either, however disobedient we may have been or however far we have gone to try to escape his presence. God always goes after the one. His grace is for Jonah and his grace is for you. Like Jonah, some storms in life are of our own making. Is there such a storm raging in your life right now? If so, the good news is that grace is still for you. Embrace the grace Jesus offers you and the storm won't last forever. You know, I don't know about you, but I love a good bargain or getting something for free. Perhaps you've had your eye on something in the sales for a while, an unexpected rebate on your electricity bill, or even just a supermarket buy one, get one free offer. Well, a few years ago, when we lived in central London, I used to do all my grocery shopping online. And as it was close to Easter, I'd ordered 15 Cadbury's chocolate cream eggs. You know, the ones that are the same size as a real egg. Well, to my amazement, when the delivery arrived, they gave me 15 enormous deluxe Cadbury's chocolate eggs, each the size of a rugby ball. I phoned the supermarket and they said that because it was their error, they wouldn't charge me anything, but we were free to keep the chocolate eggs. We hadn't paid for them and we certainly didn't deserve them, but we got them free anyway. You see, grace is a bit like this, only so much more. We don't deserve it, but God in his goodness, in his kindness, extends it to us. It says in Isaiah 30, verse 18, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he will rise up to show you compassion. Even though Jonah fails to be the messenger of God's grace and good news, he's still the recipient of it. The Lord could have given up on Jonah and sent someone else. That wouldn't have been such a big deal for him. But whilst God chooses to not give up on an entire nation of violent people, he also chooses not to give up on Jonah. And so right at the end of our passage, we are told God sends a fish to swallow him whole and provide his eventual rescue. I wonder how many of us can honestly relate to Jonah. Jonah fails to understand grace, and maybe sometimes we do too. Perhaps we've judged or alienated people unfairly or chosen to ignore the God-given mission that is right under our noses. Or maybe we've chosen not to believe that God wants to work out His grace in our lives because we are afraid of surrendering to God, even when we don't know the outcome. What Jesus has for us is so much more than a free Cadbury's cream egg or even a school scholarship place. It's the promise of hope and salvation and the invitation to play our part in his kingdom plans and purposes in our everyday lives. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for speaking to us through the life of Jonah. Lord, we thank you that your grace is sufficient, that you long to pour out your grace on each one of us today afresh. We invite you to come now, Holy Spirit. Would you change us? Would you fill us with your grace, with your hope, with your love and your peace? Lord, we are sorry for the times when we allow our fear to limit our faith. Please change us, fill us afresh with faith and love for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.